Revelation chapter 7 is an unanticipated break in the sequence that is introduced in Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 6, we as readers were progressing through each of the seals that were being uh, summarized as the Lamb was, was opening them sequentially, and we were learning something of their contents. As we get to the end of chapter 6, we expected that the seventh seal would then be opened. And instead, we're given a question at the end of Revelation chapter 6 that says, Who shall be able to stand? Well, it turns out that instead of John moving right into the opening of the seventh seal, he decides to answer this question in detail about who it is that will be able to stand. And so it's Revelation chapter 7 that answers this question. Now, this uh, is a literary pattern <laughs> that, that we can notice as we read the book of Revelation. John creates this anticipation um, right before re- revealing a new and wondrous event. He seems to pause uh, before giving us the thing that we anticipate, and he heightens our <laughs> expectations and anticipation. Uh, you may have noticed him doing this in chapter 1, for example, when he hears this voice uh, that's like unto a trumpet, and and then as readers, when we're taken to the source of that voice, instead we're introduced to seven candlesticks. Uh, this pattern repeats all the way up until chapter 7 and several Curious and interesting ways. Another is that John is told to write this vision that he will be given, but before we are treated to the uh, to the opening of that vision, uh, we first are required to go on a trip with John to seven cities and to deliver a message to them. And so John is doing this throughout Revelation. He does it later, um, after chapter 7 as well, but he most certainly is doing this in chapter 7 as well. It's almost as though he's testing your patience, and then he is rewarding it doubly, (laughs) because you get the thing that you anticipated, which we will in chapter 8, when the seventh seal is opened. But we also get this gem in chapter 7 uh, prior to that. So so chapter 7, again, it answers this question about who will stand. And we come to find that the answer is put most succinctly in verse 14 of chapter 7. And the answer is that it's, it's they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, as it says in verse 14. This was facilitated through priesthood, power, and authority, which is represented by a, I would say, a qualitative value. And I'll explain what I mean more about that in a moment. A a number that should be taken qualitatively instead of quantitatively, and I'm referring to the 144,000. We also, in this chapter, are treated to something like a a reprise 
of the beautiful song that we're we're first introduced to in chapter 5 of those who are surrounding the throne of God and this time it's a it's a slightly different variation of the song but it is the same um group that is assembled around the throne it seems that is singing that song with that let's move into these verses in detail and by the way uh, doing so will allow us to come to a discussion at the very end of this chapter about the effects of the sacrifice of the lamb of god both collectively and individually in a in a very beautiful way so coming back then to verse 1 we find that that John is extending this question forward then of who shall be able to stand and and we're still talking about the um kind of the the calamities that are about to f- uh, fall upon upon the world uh, towards the end of the sixth seal and that that's described by four as it's described as four angels who as it says in verse 1, are, are holding the four winds of the earth as though they're holding them back. So uh, almost as though it's an expression of potential energy versus kinetic energy. They haven't unleashed this uh, kinetic energy of destruction upon the earth just yet. So let me read these verses uh, to give this context. So verses 1 through 3. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. All right, so let's go back and and, um, come to a better understanding of what is being discussed here. So these four angels, the number four, and then it says, standing on the four corners of the earth. So this number of four... Um, this this is a literary device that indicates fullness. And so in this case, uh, the, the number four and the four corners of the earth indicates that it's the fullness of the entire earth, like a geographical fullness. Um, this complements what we've just gone through in chapter six quite well, because that indicated uh, a fullness of time. And so we're we're dealing with with um, in this chapter a fullness of space. So the entire Earth is implicated in what's happening here towards the end of the sixth seal. Then we find out that these four angels, and we'll learn more about uh, about their identity, but that they are holding the four winds of the Earth at bay as I mentioned a moment ago, 
but they seem to be ready to unleash their destructive power. We learn that contextually by looking in verse 4 at the way in which this wind has the potential of, as it says, blowing on the earth or on the sea or on a tree. And then the word hurt is used in verse 3. So this, this fifth angel is holding them back, these four angels, holding them in abeyance and saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees. So this should make you ask, well, what is this wind then? Uh, what are these four winds that come from these four angels? The the Greek word underneath this is A-N-E-M-O-S, and, and it means a storm wind. And something that's similar to that is the Greek word K-U-M-A, which means a hot wind. And in that case, it would be something like a Sirocco, which is a, which is a wind that is a known um, and destructive problem in northern Africa, for example. And so he's, he, he is referencing a hot, destructive, hurricane-like wind that these angels are holding and are ready to unleash when the time comes. So the fifth angel then, in verse 2, is described as another angel. Notice that he ascends. And so that's something like the sun, because the sun ascends from the east, the rising sun does. And this angel has the seal of the living God, and this is all we know about him so far. But in this case, he seems to be playing a a protective role um, against these other angels, yet it the other angels also seem to be heavenly emissaries. And so we have two heavenly parties that are working in contradiction to one another. Now, this is, this is very interesting. Uh, we get the sense here then that there's almost that there's more than one party in heaven that is to be appeased. And the four angels are representing one party and then this fifth other angel rising as the sun is representing the other party. Uh, this is something to think about deeply. Um, it, it might remind you of Alma's discussion of justice and mercy, uh, because there we're introduced to this concept that there, there are two heavenly values or two heavenly ideals, two heavenly forces, or perhaps two heavenly parties that uh, have to be satisfied. And, and there's a tension between these two heavenly qualities throughout Scripture. It's something that we could, we could talk about a lot. Um, so, so who is it then that can bring the, the ultimate resolution between these two heavenly tensions and, of course, a personal resolution and the, the answer is something that we'll talk about at the very end of this chapter. It, it is only one. It is the Lamb of God. Let's learn, before moving on, just a little bit more about these angels. Here, here's a restatement of this, or here's another reference to destroying angels of this sort. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, Verse 12, it says, Which causeth silence to reign, and all eternity is pained, and the angels 
awaiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares that they may be burned, and behold, the enemy is combined. We we rely on a quote from um, President Wilford Woodruff to give us more information about these angels. It says, God has held the angels of destruction for many years, lest they should reap down the wheat with the tares. But I want to tell you now that those angels have left the portals of heaven and are hovering over the earth waiting to pour out the judgments. And from this very day they shall be poured out. Calamities and troubles are increasing in the earth, and there is a meaning to these things. Remember this and reflect upon these matters. If you do your duty and I do my duty, we'll have protection and shall pass through the afflictions in peace and safety. He refers here to the afflictions, which is interesting. He's, he may not be talking about afflictions generally. Uh, we, we encounter something similar as we get uh, farther into this chapter. And so again, in verse 3, we get the sense that this fifth angel is telling these other angels to please stay your hand until the work is finished, um, until his servants have done all they can. And we're going to learn more about priesthood servants doing all that they can um, so that um, all will be made ready to stand before him, answering that question again at the end of Revelation 6. This is, is really reminiscent, I think, of this beautiful olive tree allegory in Jacob chapter 5. This is where we have this exchange between the servant of the vineyard and the Lord of the vineyard. And this too reflects that tension that I was speaking of earlier uh, that is played out in Revelation chapter 7 between these two parties of angels. And it's played out here in a very interesting way. Uh, This is in verses 47 through 51, and you can just feel the frustration and the exasperation of the servant who wants so much to give it another run. He wants the master of the vineyard to stay his hand a little longer and give him a chance to save all that will possibly come unto him and be saved. It, it also reminds you of that statement that he repeats, I think, three times in Third Nephi. Uh, I, I think it's in chapter 9 when he says, How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and yet you would not. So uh, here's this passage in Jacob 5, verses 47 through 51. But what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened mine hand? That I have not nourished it? Nay, I have nourished it, and I have digged about it, and I have pruned it, and I have dunged it, and I have stretched forth mine hand almost all the day long, and the end draweth nigh, and it grieveth me that I should hew down all the trees of my vineyard, and cast them into the fire that they should be burned. Who is it that has corrupted my vineyard? And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots which are good? 
And because the branches have overcome the roots thereof, behold, they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. Behold, I say, is not this the cause that the trees of thy vineyard have become corrupted? And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Let us go down and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire that they shall not cumber the ground of my vineyard, for I have done all. What could I have done more for my vineyard? But behold, the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, Spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, Yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me, grieveth me, that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. So there's that that tension between these two parties. The just party and the mediating party, we might say. The statement at the end of chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 3, uh, says that basically, stay your hand, destroying angels, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so then we're going to go into a discussion of what that means. Uh, before doing that, um, we ought to look at section 77, verses 8 through 9, which discuss these angels um, in this question and answer format that we find in section 77. So verse 8 says, question, what are we to understand by the four angels spoken of in the seventh chapter and first verse of Revelation? Answer, we are to understand that they are four angels sent forth from God, to whom is given power over the four parts of the earth to save life and to destroy. These are they who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, having power to shut up the heavens, to seal up life, or to cast down to the regions of darkness. Verse 9, question. What are we to understand by the angel ascending from the east? Revelation 7th chapter and 2nd verse. Answer. We are to understand that the angel ascending from the east is he to whom it is given the, is he to whom is given the seal of the living God over the twelve tribes of Israel? Wherefore he crieth unto the four angels, having the everlasting gospel, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was to come to gather together the tribes of Israel and restore all things. Well, we could talk for a few moments about Elias and and how uh, his name figures into this, and it's probably best um, to understand Elias as a composite figure. He most certainly is a forerunner. Here is some help from Bruce R. McConkie in talking about the identity of Elias. He said, By finding answer to the question, by whom has the restoration been effected, we shall find who Elias is and find there is no problem in harmonizing these apparently contradictory revelations. And and he's referring to uh, different names that have been associated with Elias. Who has restored all things? Was it one man? Certainly not. Many angelic ministrants have been sent from the courts of glory to confer keys and powers, to commit their dispensations and glories again to men on earth. At least the following have come, Moroni, John the Baptist, Peter, James and John, Moses, Elijah, 
Elias, Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, since it is apparent that no one messenger has carried the whole burden of the restoration, but rather that each has come with a specific endowment from on high, it becomes clear that Elias is a composite personage. The expression must be understood to be a name and a title for those whose mission it was to commit keys and powers to men in this final dispensation. Now we'll move on and talk about this sealing, which will take place in the foreheads of the servants of our God, as it says in verse 3. And then we'll talk about who it is that that receives this, and we'll learn uh, of their gratitude, or thanksgiving is the word that's used later in this chapter. Okay, so sealing uh, sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. This is most certainly a metaphor, and uh, it, it conjures kind of strange or bizarre images for us, as do many of the images in the book of Revelation. And with the help of the Spirit, of course, we can we can um, come to a full understanding of what can be meant there. Um, seal is the same term that's used in the New Testament in other contexts. And let me just read a couple of those, because they have to do with saints who are baptized and who have received the Holy Spirit of promise. One example of this is in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul says, Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts? Here's a similar expression in, first, or in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And so we use this word in, in lots of different ways. Um, in the scriptures, and we've been talking about seals that bear the mark of a signet ring that seal a scroll. And so that image is, is useful here as well, but we're talking specifically about uh, faithful saints who are sealed up, and, and ultimately, they, they are, it's a seal of protection, really, and that, that makes sense since we're, we're trying to have the hand of these destroying angels stayed, uh, this ceiling then will protect these saints, and that's, that's a message for all of us, of course. It also um, reminds us of the Passover, really. If you think about what happened uh, with the ancient Israelites, uh, you can read this passage in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that the sealing of the faithful in their foreheads, quote, signifies sealing the blessing upon their heads, meaning the everlasting covenant, thereby making their calling and election sure. I want to read some commentary by Richard Draper out of his book, Opening the Seven Seals, here. 
which will help us understand this concept more fully before we move into the next verses. He said Peter expounded the doctrine of calling and election, and you can read about that in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, and Paul referred to it on a number of occasions. The basic idea is that through faith, repentance, and baptism, a person can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. As he responds to its teachings, he becomes purer and develops the attributes of godliness, culminating in Christ-like love. Certain benefits flow out of this. As Nephi said, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And that's out of 2 Nephi 31.20. Brother Draper goes on to say, a person has made his calling and election sure when the promised blessings are sealed to him. Peter admonished the saints of his day to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. The things, uh, the, the these things that he referred to, including growing in virtue, testimony, patience, brotherly love, and the pure love of Christ, uh, this sequence is just incredible, and, and I would add in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, as we learn about what it means uh, about, about what this means. Uh, those who do these things are assured that they shall have eternal life from which they will never fall. Revelation suggests that this power will function widely before the end of the sixth seal. There is another step one can achieve in mortality, but Peter does not focus on this. He does allude to it when he states, quote, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do dwell, or ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, and the day star arise in your hearts, unquote. The Doctrine and Covenant states that the term, quote, the more sure word of prophecy means a man's knowing that he is sealed up unto eternal life by revelation and the spirit of prophecy through the power of the holy priesthood, unquote. That's section 131, verse 5. Thus, a person can receive a revelation that he has attained unto eternal life while in mortality. The symbol of the seal as used by John does not necessarily include the more sure word of prophecy or or having your calling and election made sure, I would add. It does include, though, having the Holy Ghost ratify the covenants that one has entered into and the person maintaining a state of justification through faithfulness. So this is a very desirable state, then, we can say to have uh, the servants of God, to have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads, to repeat that phrase one more time. Now, we move on to something that is often misunderstood, and there's a very good reason for that. And that has to do with the 144,000. So we're introduced to this number, and it'll come back later in the book of Revelation. But we're introduced to it here in verse 4. Here's the problem. As modern readers, when we read a phrase like this at the beginning of verse 4, where it says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, well, we expect a quantitative expression. 
If you ask someone how old they are, you will expect to hear a number in return, and you will take that quantitatively and literally. However, ancient readers and those of the Jewish tradition in particular used numbers in a qualitative way, in a descriptive way. And so when it says, here is the number of them which were sealed, when, when we expect a quantitative answer, what's really being conveyed here is something qualitative. It's, it's as though John is saying, and here is who is sealed. And, and that's what the number is telling us. The number is expressing who is sealed. It's a qualitative concept. We know this because the number 144 is a multiple of 12. And in fact, it's 12 squared. That's a very effective way to express fullness of priesthood. 12 is a priesthood number, as we've already learned in the book of Revelations. And if you want to make it full, we'll then square it. 12 times 12 equals 144. So that's what's being expressed in this number. It's not to be taken literally as a quantitative measure. And the thousand that follows it is simply an additional point of emphasis. And John has done that earlier too by talking about thousands of hosts that undoubtedly represent even more than that. And so we learn from the number 100. And 44,000 in verse 4, that there are many, many, many who will be sealed. But more importantly, it's not about how many. (laughs) It is about the fact that the fullness of the priesthood is in effect. And that is what is required to bring about the sealing that we've just read about. All right, so what happens then in this passage? between verses 4 and 8, are that all 12 t- tribes of Israel are listed. And, and so they, they are, th- that's the 12, and, and they represent that fullness of the priesthood. And John is calling upon the authority of these characters. <clears throat> okay, so let me read these verses now. Uh, verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher. Now, something's happening here, and it's it's a Greek filter, basically, uh, through which we're reading these Hebrew names, these familiar Hebrew names. So it's Asher, really that we're reading about in verse 6. Something similar happens to us when we open the book of Matthew and we we first go into the New Testament after reading the Old and and we find that some familiar names are rendered in a different way in the book of Matthew and it's happening here too. So I'm going to read them in the, in the in the way that we encounter them in the Old Testament as I go. So verse 6 of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. I'll come back to why Manasseh is listed. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. 
Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. And verse 8, of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Well, we've just read the names of Joseph or of Jacob's or Israel's 12 sons, but that's not quite true because we just read the name of one of his grandsons and omitted the name of one of his sons. That is, if you go through these, carefully, and this certainly happened to me while reading this, I thought, where's Dan? (laughs) Dan is not listed here. Uh, And instead, Manasseh, Joseph's son, is listed as one of the tribes. We're really not exactly sure why this is. Uh, this There's a listing of the 12 tribes in First Chronicles chapter 7, and the same thing happens. Uh, Dan is omitted. And uh, uh, th- there could be several reasons for that. There, there is a traditional idea in early Christianity, for example, that an Antichrist will appear through the tribe of Dan. There's... Also, the, the, the geographical association with Dan, uh, where, where his land in the northern part of the country of Israel was associated with some ignominious things. Uh, you can visit the land of Dan to this day. I, I, I've had the, the pleasure of, of hiking in that area. It's quite amazing. We also see in this list that that's not the birth order of these sons. Well, how that might apply to the overall message of chapter 7, I'm not sure, but it is of interest. Uh, Let's go back then to talking about this 144,000, now that we have a, a, a qualitative understanding of that number. And let's go to section 77, verse 11. And again, section 77 is our guide for the book of Revelation. Uh, Verse 11 says, question, what are we to understand by by sealing the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe? Answer, we are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests, ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel, for they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom it is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. This is particularly important because it introduces us to the term church of the firstborn. That gives us additional understanding. Now, now that's not a term that's being pulled from Revelation 7, but it's being pulled again from Doctrine and Covenants section 77. We also find it in Doctrine and Covenants section 93, verses 20 through 22. For if ye keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. And now, now that's not to be missed when it says you shall receive grace for grace because we read earlier or do read earlier in section 93 about the Lord himself growing from grace to grace. Verse 21, And now verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father, and am the firstborn. And all those who are begotten through me are partakers of the glory of the same, and are the church of the firstborn. 
So the church of the firstborn is, um, is we could say a narrower, uh, there's a narrower boundary in a way that's drawn around those who are admitted into the church of the firstborn compared to those who are, uh, who, who join the church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Uh, it is the hope, of course, that all uh, members of that church become members of the church of the firstborn, and more broadly speaking, that all the inhabitants of the earth become members of the church of the firstborn because the Savior opened the way for all, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people to become members of this church. Elder McConkie says that the 144,000 are kings and priests converted, baptized, endowed, married for eternity, and finally sealed up unto eternal life. Now, this is commentary from Elder Draper that this, this sentence by Elder McConkie was embedded in a, in a paragraph by, by Richard Draper. Uh, their mission, then, is not merely to bring people into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It goes beyond that. Their special assignment centers in getting people sealed into the Church of the Firstborn through the administration of the fullness of the endowment. Our attention now turns from who, what sealing is and who the 144,000 are uh, to who it is that facilitated all of this and that, that's at the center of this. Uh, John brings us right back to the center, um, which, of course, is the Lamb who was slain. And, and in so doing, we have verses 9 through 12, and these are like a reprise of that glorious uh, heavenly song, uh, that chorus, that original heavenly version of, of Handel's great chorus, Worthy is the Lamb. Here's a reprise of this, and the wording is slightly different, but it seems to be the same um, throng that surrounds the throne. So verse 9 says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. That should be comforting, by the way. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. So we're bringing this, this same, um, same group back into the stage of our mind who are surrounding this throne, except this time, and it's the same elders and it's the four beasts. But, but we're told in verse 9 that, that they are wearing robes and they have palms in their hands. Um, we're going to learn more about these robes in a few moments where have we seen that image before? Does it call to mind the triumphal entry of the Savior into Jerusalem? Well, it certainly should. You know, in, in the previous chapter, we read about four riders of horses, and uh, the Savior himself rode in on a different animal than a horse instead of instead of that that uh, that warlike uh, horse. He rode in, of course, on a donkey, but there were palm fronds. 
that were laid down in front of him. And palm fronds are a symbol of victory. And, and really, um, so are white robes. And and they they are a form of victory as well, or a symbol of victory, especially when we think about the idea that was introduced earlier in Revelation about overcoming uh, when those messages were delivered to the seven cities and we and we talked about who who it is that will overcome well that's that's also who is who's victorious so those are are the words then to this beautiful heavenly song and again it's similar to the worthy is the lamb song in chapter 7 but also different and the word uh, thanksgiving is added so verse 12 says saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So there is some um, heavenly precedent and some scriptural precedent for the use of the word thanksgiving that we might remember the next time we use that word. Now as we move through the text, it's time to emphasize the white robes and and the angel himself, or excuse me, one of the elders. And this is not the first time that this has happened when one of the elders speaks to John. But one of the elders asks him something kind of interesting because he says, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? Now, why would the elder be asking this of John? It's almost like a Socratic method of teaching that's going on here. And and John, John comes back to him in verse 14 as if to say, why, why are you asking me? He says in verse 14, and I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And so then the elder goes on to expound the meaning of the robes. Uh, this is interesting, uh, this pattern and why it is that this elder would do this when he knows the answer. Uh, I, I think um, we could think about that for just a moment. Um I think it places emphasis for us as readers on the the importance of the answer that is about to come. So we're about to get this answer in verse 14, and uh, it's it's going to answer uh, who these are that are in the white robes. But it also really is answering the overall question that has pushed us into Revelation chapter 7 in the first place, and that is kind of the thesis behind it. And again, that's in verse 16 at the end of Revelation 6, which says, who shall be able to stand? So that's what's being dealt with here. And I think maybe that's why this curious question comes from this elder. So here is the answer then from this elder. So John says, sir, thou knowest. And the elder said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Richard Draper points out that there's actually an indefinite article that sits in front of great tribulation. It's the word the. So they've come out of the great tribulation. So we can we can take meaning from this when talking about great tribulation generally, but uh, this seems to have reference to these leading up events uh, at the end of the sixth seal. So again, he's saying they've they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, that seems counterintuitive that red blood would create white robes. So let's talk about that for a moment and let's contrast 
that um, concept with other scriptures that talk about blood on garments as being something that's undesirable. A passage that comes to mind for me is in the book of Jacob, chapter 1, verse 19, when Jacob says that we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering for the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. So here, Jacob is talking about a spotlessness that we can have uh, because of the absence of blood on our garment. There are many other scriptures that um, evoke a similar image. Here are a few. Uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27 says, A man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. That's more oblique, of course, but that's typical of, of passages from the Pentateuch. Acts 20, verse 26 says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. And now we go to the Book of Mormon for another reference that connects this uh, blood with, with garments. This one is, is, is really a, a vivid image. This is Jacob again in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 44. O my beloved brethren, remember my words. Remember, I take off my garments and I shake them before you. I pray the God of my salvation that he view me with his all-searching eye. Wherefore ye shall know at the last day, when all men shall be judged of their works, that the God of Israel did witness that I shook your iniquities from my soul, and that I stand with brightness before him, and am rid of your blood. So there's a short survey of, of, of blood on garments, and, and this idea that you would not be spotless if, if you had blood on your garments. Now, in this instance, it's, it's a different but related image, because in this case, uh, these sealed individuals who are clothed in white robes, their robes are white precisely because of blood. But in this case, it's not the blood of men to whom we are accountable or to whom we have account for whom we have accountability, as Jacob pointed out. But instead, it is the blood of the lamb. And and remember that the, this this is the lamb who was slain, and so his blood has been part of this imagery. Uh, from from the the time that he was introduced into chapter five, he he was injured in some way or slain. Um, the bottom line with this then is that this image of robes uh, that are washed and made white in the blood of the lamb is a is a is is something that that means that we're purified through the atonement. Of Jesus Christ, there there are other scriptures that make that clear. I, I want to read a couple. Alma chapter five verse twenty one says, "I say unto you, ye will know at that day that ye cannot be saved, for there can no man be saved except his garments are washed white. Yea, his garments must be purified until they are cleansed from all stain through the blood of him whom it has been spoken by our fathers, who should come to redeem his people from their sins." 
Alma later says in Alma chapter 13, verses 11 through 12, Therefore they were called after this holy order, that of course is the priesthood, and were sanctified, and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. Now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. And there were many, exceedingly great many, who were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. It's, I think, so exciting to see similar verbiage and similar imagery in different dispensations in different volumes of Scripture. It's very powerful. We get the words of the Savior himself in 35 chapter 27, verse 19, and no unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. So that is who is able to stand. It's those who are washed and purified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Here's a wonderful quote by Elder Lynn A. Mickelson from um, General Conference back in November of 2003. He says, The Savior stands at the door and knocks. And there, of course, is an image from Revelation chapter 3. He is ready to receive us immediately. Our responsibility is to do the work of repentance. We must abandon our sins so the cleansing can begin. The promise of the Lord is that he will cleanse our garments with his blood. He gave his life and suffered for our sins. He can redeem us from our personal fall. Through the atonement of the Savior, giving himself as the ransom for our sins, he authorizes the Holy Ghost to cleanse us in a baptism of fire. I I emphasized, of course, this phrase, he can redeem us from our personal fall. I, I found that very enlightening. With the final three verses of this chapter, we're going to learn to use King Benjamin's words about the blessed and happy state of these who have had their robes washed in this way. And we're also going to learn more about the Lamb uh, who washed them away. So let's go through this beautiful passage. Verse 15 says, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night, in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, I want to, I want to look at this word serve uh, because behind that is the Greek word latruo, L A T R E U O. It means to serve, yes, just as it says here. And, and we tend to ascribe a general meaning to the word serve, but in this case, it, it really does have reference to um, performing specific rites and even ordinances, uh, and especially in the temple. The same Greek word shows up in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, where it says, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So there's the word serve. And I love this verse for other reasons but who serve unto the, unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shewed thee in the mount. So, in addition to this idea that, that, that serve in this context 
has to do with temple service and specific rites, uh, we find that the temple is but a shadow of heavenly things. And uh, we can apply that concept more broadly, which we'll do in a moment. This, um, I, I think... I think that the reward for this service is expressed at the end of verse 15 then, where it says, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. I I want to dwell on that idea for just a moment of having him dwell among us. And and we read earlier in Revelation chapter one about him being in the midst of his church, but this idea that he could dwell among us uh, this is the reward then for such cleansing, and it is also the reward for such temple service. And and I, something that I, that I want to look at for just a moment is is really what what must be in our spiritual DNA, to use that phrase. And and I think it is to want we want for Him to dwell among us with more intensity, really than we can realize and and the veil shields us i think from from the intensity of that desire but we do have an, an intense desire to dwell among the savior and and with our god and um our spirits i i think they crave this i think that in the scriptures our spirits are are sometimes given their own character uh, enos talked about how his soul hungered, for example. Um, and, and so it says, then he kneeled before his maker, but his soul hungered. We're going to talk a little bit more about hunger and thirst in just a moment. And so we move to verse 16, which says, they, these, these blessed and happy people, shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. So we'll talk about hunger and thirst in just a moment, but this reference to sunlight on them nor any heat, uh, that could have to do with these destroying angels. Um, they have they have permanently sidestepped this destruction which is to come, and, and that's because this, this word heat could be uh, related to the winds that were mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, uh, that those hot, destructive winds. Verse 17, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. So that answers the hunger that's mentioned in verse 16. And shall lead them unto fountains of living waters. And that, of course, answers the thirst in verse 16. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Hunger, then, that um, we could think about. This has sacramental overtones or undertones. We can think about um, the Savior's statement that that he would feed with bread. The Savior says this in John chapter 6, verse 32, Then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then they say unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. 
He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Then we get this statement from the Savior in the book of John as well. And I hope it's not lost on us that we're taking this from the book of John. Uh, He says this in John chapter 7. This is associated with the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, In verse 37, it says, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And so I, I think there is this sense, we could say, of spiritual satiety. And that's something to think deeply about. Um, we physically have a need for constant nourishment, just constant. Um, it, 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 as soon as we achieve satiety, we eat a meal and we feel full. Uh, it, it's short-lived. Uh, it, it's on to the next meal and the next drink. Uh, really, it, it only takes a few hours for us to be hungry once again. And and this cycle is really constant for us from our first breath of life to our, our very last. We're always seeking this, this, um, this satiety. We're, we're always looking for nourishment. And um, I think maybe that this too is suggestive or symbolic of our spirit's need for the same thing. Um, it, I think it might tell us, kind of like how we read in Hebrews that there is a, a shadow of heavenly things, it might tell us that there's something more lasting. And uh, in, in, in we might say that in our fasting, <laughs> as we hunger for food, something more lasting awaits. And I I think that's very true here, that we can look forward to a time when we are um, in a state of perpetual nourishment because of the way that we're fed by the Lamb. Now, this final phrase, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's an image that we can all relate with. Uh, I think we can all uh, remember, if we go deep into our memories and think about our own experience as children, what it felt like to be consoled after crying, and and to consider the way in which children can be consoled uh, after they have have shed tears, uh, and and remember that the the Savior counseled us to be as little children. Um, It suggests to us that he will right the wrongs that have taken place in our life, and we will be made a whole, be made whole again. Uh, I think this, this uh, earthly expression, or, or, or I'm sorry, earthly experience of crying and then receiving consolation is also a shadow of heavenly things. It's a type, I think, maybe of this ultimate spiritual reality, where once and for all. Uh, tears can be wiped away from our faces, meaning that we'll be made whole again and that that um, any of the wrongs in our lives that have, that have caused us to cry uh, will most certainly be resolved and that we can be fully consoled and, and turn from that sad thing just as we see little children doing. I think there's also a collective component to this. 
besides the individual. Uh, when it says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes in verse 17, we might ask, what tears could we be talking about? And if we remember back to what we read in chapter 6, consider for a moment the, the amount of tragedy and suffering that we took in as readers as we read chapter 6. Now, that was a very cursory overview of the earth's history. And, and we talked about the tragedies surrounding the, the, the time of Noah, for example, or the tragedies uh, surrounding the, the, the era of Christian martyrdom, for example. But we can drill down into our own 1,000-year epoch and even just the last century and, and, and we can consider the scope and the scale of, of the tragedy of our just our own era. And truly, we're left to wonder when, when we look at the magnitude of the death and the pain and the suffering that has happened and say, how, how could this possibly ever, ever be resolved? It, it makes you want to ask that question that's raised in Jeremiah. Where is the balm of Gilead? Or you might think of that, that beautiful hymn we sing, Where Can I Turn for Peace, that asks who, who can understand. And, and, and you wonder who could possibly have the capacity, the capacity to right wrongs that have taken place on such a scale for so long. How could we collectively then be brought to such a feeling of consolation that it could be as though tears are being wiped from our eyes. And so this chapter tells us the answer. And as it, as it is expressed in that beautiful hymn, uh, the answer is He, only one. And uh, He will right these wrongs. He will do it in the way that it's described in this verse by sealing us up. And he will also do it for us day to day by, again, as the hymn says, answering privately, reaching our reaching. And uh, he, he, he seems to be able to do it one by one. And uh, I would also add, just to end, that that since we've talked about the individual application of this and and the um, collective application, that there there is a Zion component to this, where where we're seeing that a, a foretaste of this type of of unity, where we can be part of this great throng that sings uh, such songs to the Lamb of God, we can be part of a Zion community now by embracing this covenant which has been extended to us. Okay, well, that's that's the end of this incredible diversion from John before we turn to Revelation chapter 8 and learn about the seventh seal.